Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. I am Father Michael Mobley. I'm the rector of St. John's in Brownwood, not to be confused with St. John's in Fort Worth. Two different churches, very different sized churches. So I'm from Brownwood, and I've been there for seven years. Um, I was told that I was called the supply priest this past week. Um, and I never really thought about it in a derogatory way, but I guess somebody said, well, that just sounds so kind of like supply priest, like you're not a real priest. I don't know. I mean, I asked myself that. Um, you could, I guess, be cool and call me, you know, the SP, you know, SP, that's what I am. So this morning, um, I want to try to continue what Father Chris started last week. Um, I'll see if I can do it. He sent me notes throughout the week, so I'll see what I can do. I want to begin this morning with a story, actually a story that I use at Christmas but I think it fits in with what we're trying to do this morning. Years ago, many, many years ago, early 20th century, uh, in England, there was a young wealthy man who shared with his devout younger son a passion for art collecting. And together these two would travel the world adding only the finest art treasures to their collection. Priceless works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and many others adorned the walls of the family estate. The widowed father looked on with great satisfaction as his only son became an experienced art collector. The son's trained eye with, sharp, with his sharp business mind caused his father great pride as they dealt with art collectors around the world. And then in 1914, as winter approached, war engulfed the nation, and the young man was called up to serve his country. And after only a few weeks, his father received the telegram that he'd been dreading. His beloved son had been killed in action. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holiday with anguish and sadness. The joy of the Christmas season that he and his son had so looked forward to was gone. And on that Christmas morning, there was a knock on the door. As the old man opened the door, he was greeted by a young soldier with a large package in his hand on leave from the Western Front. He introduced himself to the man by saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one that he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. And as the two began to talk, the soldier told the old man how his son often talked about his father's love of art. I'm an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give you this. As the old man unwrapped the package, he saw that it was a portrait of his son. And although the world would never consider this to be a work of a genius, the painting showed the face of the old man's son in great detail. And overcome with emotion, the father hung the portrait of his son over the fireplace, moving aside millions of dollars worth of art's work to make space for it. And the old man sat in his chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift he had been given. The penny of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces of art which museums around the world were clamoring for. Ten years later, the old man died, and the art world waited with anticipation for the upcoming auction. According to the father's will, all the artworks which he had collected through the years would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day that he received the greatest gift. And so as art collectors begin to, to assemble from all around the world, waiting for the spectacular auction, they come together in one place, and the auction begins with a painting that was not on anyone's list. It was the painting of the father's son. The auctioneer asks for the opening bid, but the room was silent. So the auctioneer says, well, who will begin the bidding with 100 pounds? And no one spoke. Finally, someone said, who cares about this painting? It's just a picture of the man's son. 
let's move on to the good stuff. And the auctioneer responded, no, we have to sell this one first. Now who will bid for the son? Finally, a neighbor of the old man offered 50 pounds. He said, that's all I have, but I knew the boy and I'd like to have it. So the auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. And the gavel fell. Cheers filled the room and someone exclaimed, now we can bid on the real treasures here. And the auctioneer looked at the room filled with people and then announced that the auction was over. And everyone stunned. And someone spoke up and said, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for the pain of the old man's son. There are millions of dollars worth of art still in here. What's going on? The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the old man's will, whoever received the painting of his son would receive all the rest. That story is a story, obviously, about Christmas. But it's about receiving the greatest gift that the world has ever received. The coming of the God-man in the manger, the baby Jesus. And it's pretty clear what God tells us. You receive the Son, you receive everything else. Now we move from the Christmas season to the Epiphany season. And in this season, we're going to continue to consider the greatest gift that God has ever given. God the Father sending God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem the world and to redeem us. And now this, the focus shifts from the baby to the man Jesus, the God-man grown up in his earthly ministry. And so we begin to see God revealed through the work of Jesus. And my friends, you and I have received an invitation. An invitation that Father Chris started talking about last week. An invitation to receive this amazing gift of Jesus Christ. And as Father Chris stated last week, the invitation begins with the invitation to behold Jesus. To behold him as he truly is. Not how we want to make him up. Not what we want Jesus to be. You ever hear people say, well, my God, and I'm like, well, your God may not be the Christian God. We behold God for who he is. We behold Jesus for who he is. And so Father Chris picks up on this last week in the gospel reading that talks about the baptism of Jesus. But notice in our text this morning, our gospel reading, John the Baptist picks back up on this theme because he beholds Jesus twice and he announces to those around him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But I want you to notice particularly what happens the second time in the text when John declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Two of his disciples do exactly what John tells them to do. They behold Jesus and they respond by following him. And this leads us to the first part of the, uh, sorry, to the next part of the invitation of Epiphany. The first invitation last week was to behold Jesus. The invitation this week is to believe Jesus. To believe in Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And this invitation to believe comes to us really in three parts, if you pay attention to the gospel reading this morning. It comes to us in the form of two questions, one by Jesus and one by the, the disciples, and then a personal invitation of Jesus. And up on the slide, there should be the first one, where it says that Jesus turns and sees the disciples following him, and they say, and he says to them, what do you seek? What do you seek? Sounds like a pretty simple question, right? What do you seek? But it's a profound question if you really take it at face value. It's a profound question because it's a difficult question. It's one that exists in every life. It's, however, a question that we often try to avoid or deny. For most of us, this question of what do we seek is not the subject of everyday conversation. To face our deepest longings, 
to acknowledge the emptiness within, to inquire about what is of ultimate importance, that which shapes and forms our lives, is very difficult for most of us to openly express. Because we want everybody to think we have it together, that everything's great. We ask people, how are you doing? I'm great, fine. But sometimes we're not. And sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we're seeking something more than what we have. But because this question is so risky, because it means that we'd have to be real, we'd have to be honest, we'd have to be vulnerable and open. So we talk mostly about things that don't matter. I bet you when you go home today, if you're a sports fan, all you'll talk about today is the playoffs this afternoon, right? I'm a football fan, and I'll talk about them too. But at the end of the day, does football really matter? I love it, but does it really matter? I can talk to anybody about that. I can go to a cigar shop and talk about football, but see me in a cigar shop talking about, about Jesus, that's different. It's only when things get real in our lives that we actually begin to answer this question of what do you seek? You see, when tragedy comes, when failure, when the loss of a loved one, when a challenge that seems insurmountable, that's when the question arises. About four and a half, I guess going on actually six and a half years now, my son, who at the time was seven, died in a drowning accident at a country club in Brownwood, Texas. That was by far the hardest thing I've ever faced in my life. And when it first happened, I wasn't sure what I could do, if I could go on. And I remember Bishop Iker saying to me, you'll be surprised the graces that God gives you. He's always there with an invitation, and he's always asking you, what do you seek? So what did I tell him? I want peace. I want the ability to go on. And God gave it to me. But it's this question that was hard. I had to be real with God and real with me. And this question of what do you seek is ultimately the question that lies at the core of our discipleship and our relationship with God. How we answer it determines how we live. How we navigate the tragedies and pain of life. How we relate to God and to our neighbor. Even if we never directly ask the question of ourselves, we're always answering, aren't we? We answer it every minute of every day. We answer Jesus' question by our choices, by the decisions that we make, the priorities that we establish, the relationships we create. We answer this question by the things we have done and by the things we have not done. The words we speak point to what we're looking for. Our life is the history book that answers Jesus' question. What are you looking for? Look at my life, and I'll show you about what I've been doing and what my priorities are. But here's the glory of the gospel. I'm not bound by my history. In Christ, I'm not destined to repeat my history and be simply a product of my sins and my mistakes. Jesus is always asking the question and giving us the chance to answer anew. So when Jesus turns and asks his question, he's really asking us to be introspective to be self-reflective, to, to choose the course of our life. His question is for us, not him. Jesus is not asking for us for a wish list. What do you want for Christmas? Give me your list. He's not asking that. He's taking us deep into our own heart to discover the reality of our longings, the desires, and the emptiness. You see, what do you seek is a question that takes us into the human heart. But we have to be real with ourselves and real with God to answer that question. Jesus knows that we're all looking for something. The question is what? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? That's where true belief in Jesus begins, by answering that question honestly. He invites you to believe, and he says, what do you seek? 
Thus, the invitation to believe begins with Jesus inviting us to get real with him and with ourselves. But notice the invitation doesn't stop there. The disciples' response to Jesus' question carry on the invitation. Notice what they say to him. Where are you staying? Now, it seems at first that they're just kind of trying to go around his question, right? I, eh, whatever, let's just go on. But really, they're responding to him. Where are you staying? The question is not a question of what's your address, Jesus? Where do you live? It's a deeper question. It's a question of their own sense of homelessness, their own sense of wondering, looking for where they belong. They want to go home. They want to go to a place that's, of, that's content, a place of fulfillment, a place where they belong. They want to trust that Jesus is the home they have longed for, that Jesus is the one who can fill their emptiness and satisfy their deepest desire. So they ask him, where are you staying? Too often, you and I, though, have put our trust and belief in things that have left us feeling even more empty and hopeless, have we not? And because of that, we're scared. We're scared to take Jesus because we look at Jesus like we look at everybody else in our life that's disappointed us. My friends, we're all looking for something to truly believe in. We're all looking for something bigger than ourselves, something greater than this world, something to tell us why we're here and what hope there is for us. These disciples are asking Jesus, if we put our trust in you, if we believe in you, what will we find? Will we find a home? And now comes the crux of God's invitation to believe in Jesus through the person of Jesus. Jesus responds in some translations, and I like this translation where it says, Jesus simply says three words, come and see. Come and see. These are familiar words to us, are they not? Even if you've never heard this gospel reading today, even if you've never read it, you've heard these words. You've heard them from your kids as they were growing up, or maybe from your grandchildren. Come and see what I've made, or come and see what I'm drawing. Their words were an invitation to share in their discovery, to experience their world, and to participate in their life. It was the invitation to let your life and theirs come together as one. And that's why you can't just sit back and say to them, no, just tell me about it, just tell me. Because that's not an acceptable answer to your kids, is it? Or your grandchildren. They know that information and relationship are not interchangeable. Just because you know things about Jesus doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus. You can only have a relationship with Jesus if you accept the invitation to come and see. You see, when your kids tell you this, what they're saying to you is, come and see Because when you come and see, you become part of my life and I become part of your life. And there's only one acceptable answer, to get up and to go see. And that's not just for kids, is it? Adults say it too. We invite our spouse, a best friend, a trusted colleague to come and see our work and our accomplishments, to come and see our pain and struggles, to come and see our life. Not only that, we also want to to be invited to come and see others. You see, at some level... When you are invited to come and see, these are epiphany moments, the aha, when the light comes on, right? The moments when God reveals his life in us and among us. We never outgrow the desire to invite or to be invited, to share our life with another in a deep and meaningful way, to participate in something larger than ourselves. That's part of our being created in the image and likeness of God. Jesus knows that about us and about God. That's why he doesn't answer the disciples' question when they ask, where are you staying? He doesn't offer information. He invites relationship. Come and see.
Think how different our, today's gospel would be if Jesus had simply answered the question, where are you staying? Oh, it's just a couple miles on the street on the left, right? I mean, so what? What does that mean? Who cares? Unless we're invited into Jesus' life, the address doesn't matter. We might as well stay where we are, but that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus offers more than his address. Come and see, he says. There is reassurance and promise in his words. That means that he has something for us. It means that he is opening himself to us and inviting us in. He has gone ahead of us and prepared a place for us. Regardless of what's going on in our life, he makes it safe to move forward and take the next step in confidence that his life and presence await us. Come and see is his invitation to believe in him and to discover our life's purpose to be in true, authentic relationships with God and with one another. Because in the end, nothing else matters. We do that by accepting the invitation to receive the greatest gift that God has ever given. His only son coming into the world and manifesting himself and his plan for the redemption of the world through his ministry. My friends, I ask you this this morning. If, you, if you've toned out, come back in for this poem, okay? And I know it's easy to do. I want you to ask you this. I wonder what Jesus wants to show you. What he wants to manifest to you. In what ways does he want to share his life with you? How might he be offering himself to you right now, this morning, this afternoon, this week? How might he be asking you to participate in his life? Look at your life. What do you see? What's it like? Is it full and abundant? Come and see. Empty and desolate? Come and see. Filled with change, chaos, and the unknown? Come and see. Is it one of joy and celebration? Come and see. One of loss and sorrow? Come and see. Do you feel lost and confused? Come and see. Is it smooth sailing? Come and see. Is it weighed down by guilt, shame, and despair? Come and see. However you might describe your life, Jesus' response is always the same. Every life and every situation echoes with Christ's invitation to come and see. To come and see, to participate in my life, to believe in me, to follow me with all of your being, all of your soul, all of your heart. And there's only one thing to do when you get an invitation like that, right? Go see. Get up and go. So Father Chris told me I need to give you an assignment. So here's my assignment for you. I used to teach school. I love this part. Although I do it with my prisoners, they never do it. So I'm trusting you'll do it, right? So here's your assignment. I want you to, this week to consider how Jesus invited the disciples in today's gospel to believe in him. Go back and read the text. How did he invite them? There's a lot of lack of information in the text for a reason. Go and look at that. Ask yourself, honestly, openly, what do you seek from Jesus? Do you see Jesus just as a magic you know, genie in the sky that when you have problems, you rub the lamp and get what you want? What are you seeking from Jesus? Are the things you're seeking from him really, truly important? And finally, consider this question. What is Jesus offering you when he invites you to come and see? And I want you to be very practical here. You know, what I would do is get out a piece of paper and write this down. What's he offering you? What's he asking you? I want you to notice in our gospel reading today that by coming and seeing Jesus, the disciples had to leave John the Baptist behind. Sometimes coming to see means changing things. So ask yourself that. And in closing, I want you to think about this. Notice the progression here at our readings. Last week, we had the invitation to behold. 
which leads to an invitation today to believe. This invitation to believe will lead us to the invitation to belong. Believing in Jesus means belonging with Jesus and with his body, the family, the church. So stay tuned next week, same bat time, same bat channel for this. Amen. <laughs>